Murphy, and this is the Toasted Sister Podcast, radio about Indigenous food. taking road trips, don't you? How about taking culinary road trips where your destination is a restaurant or a food event? I've been on more than a few of those and I always come away with great flavor memories and a better understanding of someone else's food culture. Even if you just drive across the state, there's so much you can learn about your neighbors. I learned so much about the indigenous presence in El Paso recently. And El Paso is a four hour drive south of Albuquerque where I live. And I have to say, I didn't understand El Paso until I visited specifically for this culinary adventure. I have a very different view of it now because I saw and experienced the local culture and heard from the people about how important this place is to them. I also got to eat really good Mexican food. For this trip, the wonderful Victoria Molinar was my guide. I'd like to say thank you to her for making this episode possible, for driving me around El Paso and educating me about the history of your city. We have to do it again sometime, because I hear the weather is very good there in the wintertime. So we stopped at uh, Yesleta del Sur to meet with Rick Quesada. He's the Director of Cultural Preservation at the Pueblo. Originally, originally, we are from uh, the Albuquerque area. Part of our group comes from uh, Pueblo of Isleta, and uh, we were actually forcefully brought here in 1680 uh, by the Spanish. 
there was a huge uh, uprising in which all of the pueblos in New Mexico uh, united uh, to rid themselves from uh, Spanish rule and, and depression. And they actually were very successful. The Spanish governor at the time, his name was, uh, his last name was uh, Otermin. And uh, Otermin got defeated at the Battle of Santa Fe in mid-August of 1680. And as a result, he, he retreated to the El Paso area, uh, stopping along the way in, in, in some of the pueblos. And finally, he stopped at the Pueblo of Isleta, where he captured around 317 Southern Tiwa-speaking uh, Pueblo Indians from that Pueblo, and he brought them down here. He used them as uh, burden bearers and kind of like hostages, kind of trying to prevent uh, prevent uh, himself from being uh, and his group from being attacked by other by the other Pueblos. Uh, so he gets down here to the El Paso area, and then a year later he mounts a uh, a reconquest of, of New Mexico in the year 1680. And uh, he is again defeated in, in a little bit north of present-day Albuquerque. He is basically uh, demoralized. He retreats back. Along the way, he stops at the Pueblo of Isleta again. And he captures another 385 Southern Tiwa-speaking people from that Pueblo. And he brings them down here to the El Paso area. Isleta del Sur Pueblo, uh, we are the descendants of those two groups of people that were brought here by the Spanish in 1680 and in 1681. So tell me about the community now. Um, this is a reservation. Is it the only reservation, Indian reservation, in Texas? No, actually there are three federally recognized tribes in the state of Texas. Uh, Isleta del Sur is is one of them, along with the uh, the Kickapoos, that are located. Uh, they're also a border community. They are located between the border of Eagle Pass and Piedras ne Negras, which is just across the border in Mexico. And then we have the uh, the uh, Alabama Cuchara, and they are in the border between Texas and uh, the state of Louisiana. Uh, the community now, we have, um, I guess, two main communities. And then we also have the old community. And the old community, in our language, we call it Nalujlitu, which is the old village. And that is where we have our, our uh, ceremonial chambers. That is where we uh, we gather for any traditional dances or ceremonies, and then of course we have uh, Iaquitu, which is a corn village, and that's here in Isleta. That uh, that village, the village here has around 114 homes, give or take, and then we have Paquitu, which is located in Socorro, Texas, and that we have a little over 200 homes up there. So there's kind of like three three communities in one. All right, so uh, tell me about some of the food. I saw a orno up front. Um, do you guys make bread, Pueblo bread? Yes, we do. We make Pueblo bread. Uh, we've been making Pueblo bread here in the El Paso area for over 300 years. Uh, we still use uh, the old beehive ovens. We use them extensively for our preparation of our feast, the Feast of St. Anthony. 
which is held every June 13th. And it's about a two-week process of preparing for the feast, which usually starts around the last weekend in May. And uh, we use those ornos. We make uh, we make Indian bread. Uh, we make uh, cookies in there as well. And then we also use them to feed. We make uh, calabasas. And sometimes the, the chief even makes uh, peach cobbler pies in them. So we are basically ovens. And what about some of the other foods? I know you were talking about um, the garden that you guys have here. What are some other uh, traditional foods uh, that you'd like to highlight that come from this community? I guess um, the traditional meats uh, would probably be um, rabbit. Uh, there's a lot of rabbit here. Uh, there's a lot of mule deer. Um, my my uncles and my family members uh, would always go to the mountains and they would hunt uh, mule deer. Since we're very, very close to the uh, to the to the Rio Grande, we had a lot of fish as well. And we would eat turtles. Yeah, we call them icoteas. They're kind of like uh, water turtles. They would either make them with uh, green or red chili stew out of them. Though those were probably the meats, uh, the, the 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 fruits and the vegetables. Um, the vegetables that I really like are. Uh, it's a Spanish name. Uh, they're called verdolagas, and it is basically uh, it's kind of like a wild, like a wild spinach that grows out here. And our people used to make it with uh, they used to mix it with anything, even with salads. But my my uh, my grandma and my mom used to make them. Uh, they used to put them in the beans. And the vegetables that we did grow were, of course, the uh, the classic uh, calabazas. The corn, tomatoes, chili, onions. Some Trump tribal members even have uh, pecan trees. So Yesleta del Sur is pretty close to the border. We were driving in, and the border's on the right, and then you make a left turn, and here's Yesleta del Sur. Are there? Do you guys have any uh, concerns about uh, upped border security? Oh yeah, they affect the community tremendously. Our religious calendar starts and ends at the river. Uh, with all this talk about the wall, about security going up there, I mean, we already have a wall here. Top security is, I mean, nobody can go up to the uh, to the to the river without being stopped. We feel sometimes that we are not permitted to practice our First Amendment, which is the freedom of religion. Our religious calendar starts and ends with a with a ceremony at the river, and sometimes we can't even access the river. Sometimes you have to ask for permission. So we we there's a lot of uh, I guess concerns when it comes to border security in regards to our religious practices here at the pueblo. I know you you were talking about some wild meats, uh, hunting uh, deer in the mountains. How, what's your favorite way to eat those meats? Oh, uh, my mom used to used to make a, a nice uh, red chili stew out of deer meat, and uh, she would uh, uh, she would get the meat and then she would. I like boil it, and then because deer has uh, de- depending on the uh, on the age of the deer, if it's it's if it's a if it's a, a, a huge mature deer, it usually has a gamey taste to it. So my mother would boil the uh, the meat, and she would put a couple of garlics in there, and maybe a couple of uh, onions in there, and then and then she would prep it up 
Then after she would do that, then she would she would cut up in pieces and stuff, and then she would make the chili, and then she would add the meat to the chili, and you couldn't taste the difference. I mean, she totally removed the gamey taste out of it. We still eat it like that, and then of course she would also prep a uh, make green chili stew as well. And then my mother, she's a she's a bread maker, so she used to make Indian bread for us fresh Indian bread with uh, green or red chili uh, deer meat stew it was a gift. I recently did a tour of a couple of different Pueblos uh, for an article about Pueblo bread. And I, I saw the different shapes and the different sizes. And, you know, some people are keep, you know, they have secret ingredients for their bread and stuff like that. Can you uh, describe the bread for me? What does it look like? And um, kind of like the basic process to prepare it. Um, our bread here basically looks like uh, it's round. It's al- it looks almost like a half circle. The ingredients are simple, um, just flour, lard, yeast, and salt. The process of, of making it, each individual tribal family has their own unique way of, of, of making it. Uh, my mother just straight, straightforward um, bread, and then she also, she also uh, would make... Uh, kind of like a sweet bread off of that she would add uh, raisins and uh, a little bit of cinnamon in there to make it to make it taste you know yeah, like a sweet bread for it but yeah um every pueblo is unique in in uh in their bread baking and the Slata del sur pueblo is no is no different and each family makes it has their own special special recipe the uh chief's daughter um which happens to be my neighbor I mean, she probably makes around 300 pounds of uh, of bread a week. That's a lot of bread. Right. And that's a lot of good bread. And then, I mean, I mean the more you make it, the, or the better the, you know, the quality of the bread, because you're always making it and you're always uh, perfecting the, uh, the process and perfecting the, you know, the recipe. And she does some good bread. I mean, her bread sells... I mean, it, 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 it's not even five minutes on the shelf when it's gone. <laughs> yeah. Next, we stop over at La Mujera Abrera. I'll let the director, Lorena Andrade, explain what this place is about. La Mujer Obrera is a garment worker organization. We started here in the Chamisal neighborhood, what used to be known as a garment district in 1981, to organize as women to defend our rights uh, within the garment uh, factories. And so that's how we started, just women getting together and um, and really just making sure we got paid. We fought against the sweatshops, against the downsizing, free trade agreements at that time, the Treaty of the Twin Plants. We fought against when they announced the North American Free Trade Agreement. We organized against that to make sure everybody knew about all the layoffs that were coming. And we, and we learned that, we knew that through our study. We've always done study and we've practiced, like study of the, our place as women in the economy, in society. And then also because of our experience, we had already experienced the downsizing and the creation of the sweatshops. And then when the North American Free Trade Agreement passed, we lost 35,000 jobs. So we organized against the repercussions or the consequences of, of NAFTA, um, saying, you know, women on the border are invisible and we're disposable, which is something that was made even more clear after NAFTA. 
here on the border. Um, but we also, you know, we fight against, but we all were always thinking of what, you know, if this community was set up to serve the needs of the factories, we feel like this community should be developed to serve the needs of our families, of our community, of, of, our, of our relationships, you know, as human beings and our relationship with the earth. Those are the two things that we feel are going to help us create the community that we want uh, and that we need for the future generations. And so we also do f um, social enterprises, like we have a restaurant ca called Cafe Mayapan. We have a daycare center, Rayito de Sol, or a little school called Rayito de Sol. And we have a community farm. We have a trading company as well called Lumetic, and we help develop a network of indigenous women's artesanas cooperatives in Mexico so that it, you know, women who were affected by NAFTA there and us that we were affected by NAFTA here, how do we kind of help each other out through, through this project? So that's another, the social enterprises are something that we focus on. Also, we have what we call Familias Unidas, which is just all women in the community, you know, fighting just to defend our neighborhood against school shutdowns, against, um, uh, you know, the contamination. We're right on the border and our communities, you know, bear the brunt of the contamination um, industries here, like recycling and the diesel contamination, things like that. But again, it's we're fighting against trying to defend our, our community from being destroyed, but also looking at all the positive. Who in the community is growing food? Many of us are growing food in our community. Many of us have all this knowledge that we already have within us that we can use um, to bring up, um, you know, to create that community. And also through art, music, theater, <laughs> if we have, if we want to, um, food, games, um, it's always centered around food for some reason. Everything that connects all of our projects has something or other to do with our, our, our food and discovering the, that ancestral knowledge. Not only discovering it, but just uh, reinforcing that, you know, if we're gonna create the community that we want, a lot of that knowledge we already hold. It's just how in this situation here in our community, how do we put that more into practice, but through a community, like through collective work not as individuals, but also as individuals, but as a collective. It's our collective organizing, our collective thinking and planning and implementing our vision is what's going to guide us and help us and you know, to ask as many questions as we can and together figure out what those answers are for our community. So that's a little bit about what we do in La Mujer Obrera. Can you talk about the food a little bit more? Um, what, what kinds of uh, foods are served at uh, Cafe Mayapan? And where do they come from? Mexico and... Our restaurant, when we started our restaurant and our social enterprises, it was the time when women were being laid off from the factories and no one was giving us jobs. We were too old, too Mexican. You know, we don't assimilate um, things like we don't know enough English. All of those things were excuses that were used so that we could not get um, new jobs. And so part of the idea, like for our daycare and for our restaurant, was that we were going to create our own business so that we can learn how to a different trade, like whether it was working in the kitchen or whether it was being a caregiver or a teacher. We were going to create those spaces so that we can learn so then women would move on at that time to be able to, be, uh, to get jobs in other places because um, all we had was factory experience. So that's the original way that it was started. And of course, since we're, um, most of us were Mexican, that's the kind of food that we wanted to sell. That's how it started. But with our practice um, and us learning about, we began to say, well, it's not enough that we just serve what is, we consider Mexican food, but our health is connected to, obviously, to what we eat. And a lot of people would come from the outside world to give us classes about, you're sick because you eat Mexican food and that's why you have diabetes, you know, things like that. And we're like, well, really, the more that we learn about our, our ancestral foods, the more that we go back to the way that we 
that we eat that we would eat um, you know what, what was our base um, the healthier we're going to be ¿verdad? and so with that we began to transition some of the food that we had in our in our restaurant um, like you know getting rid of all the cheese <laughs> like you can also you can actually see the the food on your plate because <laughs> it's not covered with cheese or um, different things like that so now if we'll sell nopalitos but not just in a salad but roasted and presented in different ways and now when you know sometimes when they say eat healthy they present a plate of food to us that we don't know we've never been introduced to and so some of us begin to think that to be healthy we have to eat outside of our culture or outside of who we are when really it's a plate of, of chile and beans and nopalitos and calabacitas, which, which is ours. So now when we talk about healthy food, it's like, oh, yeah, that's our food. You know, <laughs> that's our food. And so that's important to be able to show it in the restaurant, you know. And everybody, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, vegetarian and vegan stuff. And uh, well, that's already in our menu without us even really consciously saying we're going to have Mexican vegan food, you know, it's just like, well, you could eat nopales and chile and frijoles and, and squash, ¿verdad? And that's a good plate right there. So we don't always have the words for it. Sometimes we hear words outside and then we're like, hey, we do that. But, you know, I don't want it to seem like we were um, consciously wanting to do some of these things. We were just trying to figure out what was our food and what we wanted to present and that what we wanted to offer our community that was healthy based on our traditions and, you know, um, what was good about our traditions, right? And, um, and so it's, it's just in that, uh, that's our journey. So we always think it's really kind of uh, nice that, you know, after being in the factories for so long and are organizing as factory workers, wanting to create a new community, um, led us right back to the land, to nature and to, and to food, ¿verdad? So we came from this 100 years or maybe a little bit less of working in the factories to our organizing, taking us back to making sure that we work the land and healing that relationship with the earth and, and with each other, ¿verdad? Because the factories can be very dehumanizing. Can you tell me a little bit about the community here in the, you know, along the border here? We're right on the border, like across the street is Mexico. And, you know, just in the couple of days that you've been here, there's been a wall being put up where there wasn't one. I don't know if you had a chance to see that, like they're building it as we speak. Uh -huh. So there was always a fence, but now it's taller. So that's how close we are. And our, we have an international bridge right in our community. So right next to our high school, there's an international bridge. And so our communities live right. And so we have a lot of uh, immigrant communities, as they say, uh, like in one family, there could be someone with papers, someone without them. We have a lot of that, that, that kind of families here, um, most, mostly Spanish speaking of Mexican origin that so it's many of our families like on Fridays it's kind of interesting to see like everybody gets in the car and you know you go across the you go across the bridge and you spend the weekend in Juarez or you walk over the bridge and you spend the weekend in Juarez and then Sunday night everybody comes back <laughs> so it, it's a really interesting migration I guess <laughs> during the weekends and um, so that's kind of our that's where our community is but we're also like I said since we're so close by and we're we're um, designated to serve the needs of industry you know, a lot, we also deal with a lot of the diesel contamination, the trucks being in front of our, our neighborhood high school. Um, one of our elementary schools has the highest concentration of air um, pollution, I suppose, because of all the diesel trucks passing out in front of, passing in front of it, all the recycling. But it's also, you know, people in our community growing their own food. Even if you have a little piece, you're growing nopalitos and you're growing, you know, there's a picture that, that we have 
that is just like maybe 10 inches of dirt between the fence and the building and there was corn and chile <laughs> and I was like that's resistance you know <laughs> something is saying I'm gonna grow even if I have this little piece of grow food so that's um really pretty to see like and that's why a lot of our organizing is also not just fighting against but really seeing all the good things that we're already doing to heal these relationships with each other and with with the earth and um, build from that you know so it's it's a beautiful community I think <laughs> because there's a lot of still of these human relationships there's a lot of helping each other out there's a lot of kids playing out on the street and there's a lot of people talking outside and um, there's still a lot of movement and there's um, there's a lot of community and, and families families here you know we struggle but there's also a lot of positive our last stop is the beautiful home of Ruby Orozco Santos. She's a poet who also works in ancestral health. And at the end, she'll read from her book of poetry, Inventos Mios. Mm-hmm. So, Ruby, you made a drink. It is um, really delicious. It's, it tastes like it has chocolate and amaranth. Can you tell, tell me about it? Yes, um, it's a, cho- a chocolate amaranth atole, so exactly um, that. I ground up some amaranth seed um, in a grinder and then boiled it with cinnamon and added a chocolate tablet. Well, thank you so much for um, allowing me in your home and making this really delicious drink here. Um, so uh, I guess let's start off the interview with a couple of um, things that you are doing right now. You're, you're an author, right? Yes, I just released a collection of poetry uh, in August of 2018. Um, and it's inspired by the history and practice of nixtamalization, um, and specifically its practice here in, in the El Paso region by people who still make it at home, which I find really exciting. And you've been doing some uh, research on indigenous food. Can you tell me a little bit about that and maybe one of the more important things you've learned in your studies? I mean, there's, there's several stories or histories for example, nixtamal itself, how it was taken, you know, corn was taken to Europe. Um, it was thought that it would help with famine, which it would have, but they didn't bother to ask about how to prepare it. So the process of nixtamalization wasn't, wasn't taken. When corn isn't nixtamalized, as you, as you know, and many of your listeners probably know, then we create a, a niacin deficiency in people, and so people became very ill, and this disease called pellagra became very prevalent, and it was actually named in Italy. It means uh, bitter, like sour skin, piel agria, pellagra. It causes lesions, it causes um, dementia, and um, there were 200 years of pellagra outbreaks all over Europe, and even when corn came back in, and some populations in the southern United States it took 200 years for a physician to say, wait a minute, indigenous people eat corn all the time. They don't have this disease. What are they doing differently? And so there's a lot of stories like this of um, our foods being taken, sometimes being taken from us, and our relationships with them being interrupted, like amaranth being outlawed in Mexico by the Spanish with a penalty of, of death or cutting off your hand if you were caught growing it. Um, Chia also was banned. Um, There's an herb called estafiate that was listed as a reason for several killings during the Inquisition um, because people were using it for ceremony. And spirulina, 
is another story. Um, you know, the Spanish drained the lakes where Mexican people harvested it. And, um, you know, there's so much. And so those are some of the, the histories that I'm learning. And I think, um, I think that's just the first step is to reconnect with that, um, that history of how we were disconnected or interrupted, interrupted relationship between us and some of our foods so we can rekindle and know each other again. Um, you say interrupted. I mean, it seems like in, especially the United States, it seems so separate. Uh, Mexican food is Mexican food, but it's really indigenous food. Can you talk a little bit more about that and, and how we can maybe change that perception and really start including Mexican food when we're talking about indigenous food? Yes, absolutely. I mean, if you look at pre-colonial, um, indi- uh, you know, Mexican food, it's absolutely indigenous. Like, so there was no dairy, there was no uh, like beef, and frying was not a, a custom, was not a practice. So oils were eaten cold, like peanut oil and chia oil, but things weren't fried. And so colonialism really changed our, our food system. That was like the first big blow in the continent to the food system, um, right? So certain things were not available anymore, like amaranth and chia Uh, certain things were looked down upon like wild greens and beans they're like for a sign of of poverty you know but if you eat beef if you eat bread then it means you have some wealth and so there's like cultural values that are placed on foods that don't have anything to do with the nutritional benefits and so people's people's diets change our access to land also changes and so we can't have our home gardens like we used to or our communal you know food growing and uh, so all of that changes to the point where now we think of Mexican food as like fried really meaty and uh, with a lot of cheese (laughs) Um, but um, fundamentally it's uh, a lot of seeds and wild greens and good fats and whole grains so it's uh, the, the Mexican Ministry of Health put out a study, I want to say it was 2017 or 2016, uh, where they compared the traditional Mexican diet with the Mediterranean diet and found that it had you know, similar parallels, all those things, the good fats, the seeds, the leafy, the leafy greens. So it's actually a very fresh and healthy diet. And talking about Mexican food as a uh, fresh and healthy diet, um, but how do you think um, we could maybe change those kind of perspectives and um, really start including, you know, our our Mexican foods in, you know, this big move to eat healthier and be healthier? Um, well, I think that it starts with um, talking to our elders and our families and our communities. They know and they they still remember even if they're not practicing due to whatever circumstances we might be living in nowadays. Many of them remember recipes, uh, know how to plant foods, uh, know when to harvest things, know how to save seeds. And those are all um, knowledge systems that we need to value and we need to, um, to reconnect with and make time for because this culture that we're in in the United States wants us to just work and then um, leaves little time for other other things. So we need to value um, this knowledge that you know kept us alive for so long, and make time for it. Make time to learn and practice together 
this amaranth drink here, you just mentioned that um, amaranth was one of your son's uh, first um, uh, solid foods or mm -hmm. first grains. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, talk about that a little bit, including um, children in this, this movement to reconnect and uh, go back to our traditional foods. I mean, I grew up eating a lot of fresh Mexican foods. L luckily, I had my grandma around. Some of the foods I reconnected with as a grown-up, like spirulina, I didn't even know was a, a Mexican. When I got pregnant, right before my son was born, my grandmother passed away. So I didn't have her anymore to ask her, oh, so like, when can I give him nopales, right? Nopalitos. When can I feed him beans? When can I feed him spirulina or these other things. Um, I've spent a lot of time interviewing elders throughout my life, so I have notes and notebooks. So I went through them and, and tried to find as much as I could about what they said about feeding babies. <laughs> and then I also, uh, I'm a public health educator by training, so I, I looked at the public health literature and, and the books, like indigenous foods books that I have. And so between all those things, I, I just wrote on my fridge, like, well, this is how I'm going to do, this is what I'm going to do. I want him to have those first flavors in his system, you know, so that he recognizes them and he connects them. Also, my, my husband is Dominican, um, so he has that Taino side. And so I also included, like, yuca and platano. <laughs> so I learned that amaranth is actually an ideal first grain. It's a very good source of iron and other nutrients that babies need. But also, it's very easy to digest. It's very gentle on the digestive system. So it's very good for someone who's never eaten stuff <laughs> before um, as a way to start to wake up the digestive system to, to solids. Um, so yeah, I, I started with um, avocado and banana. And then by the seventh month, I gave him a, a very simple amaranth atole which is clean water and ground amaranth, no, no sweets, nothing else, just the flavor itself of the, of the grain. And then at a community level, I, I'm fortunate that I've, one of the organizations I've worked with here in El Paso is La Mujer Obrera, and they run a daycare center um, called Rayito de Sol. And so I've been offering cooking classes for the children there for about three years. And so we we'll, might look at nopalitos, or we might look at beans, they actually know a lot and are eager to learn what they don't know and taste. It's definitely important to include the children and, and also to learn from them. <laughs> so you work a lot with the, the local community doing um, you know, educational classes on nutrition and cooking. Um, what are some kind of challenges that you run into uh, doing that? I think, uh, I think the biggest challenge is that um, we have to like, deprogram ourselves a little bit because for many decades, our families have been sold on a certain definition of progress or, or like acculturation, right? So like our families come, for example, my family moved here um, when I was eight. The first time I went to McDonald's, it was like a big deal. I was like, oh, the American dream, we made it. You know, like planting my flag. And I was just like, this is amazing, the Happy Meal. I always saw on the TV and like, it's finally here. And so there's this whole like, um, uh, it's, again, it goes back to that cultural, cultural values, right? And so the Happy Meal was exciting, but the, the beans and salsa and tortillas my mom had at home uh, were, nutritionally speaking, better for me. So that's one thing I think the, the hardest thing 
is to say, you know, go back to what we, let's go back to what we were doing um, a, a few generations ago, if not entirely, because it's and maybe it's not realistic, right? Maybe we're not all going to be farmers right now. But what are some small ways that we can uh, include some of these ancestral foods, like, or maybe start to grow them, or what's realistic for for each of us given our reality and given our, you know, our commitments. So I think that's the that's the main one because people have to give it a value so that they make time to learn and to practice. And also I think there's a a, a big emphasis on a, you know individualism uh, in this society. And one thing that I learned at La Mujer Obrera is that like to truly decolonize, you can't do it as an individual, right? I can't just say, oh well, I, I learned that spirulina is Mexican. I'm gonna go to the health food store and buy some for myself and decolonize myself. Like that's not decolonizing. <laughs> so decolonizing is about working in community to to have a shared knowledge base and to have shared access to these foods. And so organizing in your own family or with your neighbors is a really important part and it's also a challenge. You've been listening to the podcast for a while now, and you've been hearing all the great stuff happening in uh, Native America, uh, following a lot of the chefs and the food uh, workers in this, um, uh, you know, food sovereignty movement. What's one thing um, that you enjoyed learning, and something that you're you're implementing in what you're doing here? Yes, uh, I I have been following the podcast for a while, and very excited to see familiar names. You know, uh, I, I attended the Native American Culinary Association's um, Indigenous Food Symposium in 2015. After meeting a lot of the movement workers there, I, I, I followed them on social media. And so, I mean, there's so much. There's so much that I've learned from, like, people like Carlos Baca, who um, has a very, just very strong, like, colonized mind, you know? I've learned from him and others like him that like we we create culture every day with our words and our actions and our you know everything that we do and so I think what I what I've learned is um to not be afraid to go there and to reroot and to and to be radical <laughs> you know in the change the change that I need to make in myself the reconnecting that I'm doing to work uh, authentically with my community. I really admire like Liz Hoover's work, documenting food sovereignty all around indigenous nations and how, how people are going about it. And, uh, and so I feel like that that's very inspiring because it feels like there's a, it's an entire movement. And, and so that the work that we're doing in El Paso here as Mexican people, um, is also connected to that to that broader movement. All right, so you have uh, your book in front of us, Inventos Mios. Uh, tell me uh, a little bit more about it, and then uh, if you want to read from it. Um, the title means "My Own Inventions," but it's not my own inventions. It's a it's a quote from um, some uh, one of the poems that's based on some of the community work that I, that I do, and so we interviewed. Um, people in the Chamisal neighborhood who are active gardeners and asked them how they use what they grow and who taught them how to cook. And I thought it was really interesting that of um, 121 uh, surveys, three of the ladies said 
some variation of that, like, oh, well, I experiment, or it's my own inventions, you know? And so it made me think of uh, whoever was the original ancestor who invented Nixtamal was someone like them with that spirit of, like, inquisitiveness and working with foods and creating something. And um, so I feel like they're part of that lineage, you know, of people that um, in every generation we need people like them who are experimenters and who create things. So that's where the title comes from, uh, Inventos Mios. Um, I'll read a, a poem called, uh, a prose piece called Ingredients. Ingredients. White corn, water, and a trace of lime. Ground corn treated with lime. White corn cooked with lime water. Specially ground and dehydrated whole white corn, water, calcium propionate, and a trace of lime. Fermented coarsely ground corn by benign hands. Freshly soaked and ground pungent yellow flint corn embraced by cinnamon and guava steam in old adobe home. Unsalted old Spanish tiles, missing cabinet door, mixed with Gabriel's question about another Morelense revolutionary and a child asking, what's piloncillo? Maíz blanco fermentado con comanse un tamal mientras se cuecen las tortillas, con café instantáneo, con prensa de madera que le regaló su prima, con sonrisa puntuada con plata, con amistad calientita recién hecha mano que no necesita más que una pizca de sal. Corn thickly ground on hand mill, table dents where mill holds its bite. Cold handle, hard to turn, treated with body position, how to approach, where to place feet, righty or lefty, awaken memory, ask grandmother, remember her movement. Preserved in DNA, that rhythmic cranking, bowls skipping melodically on table. Puebla and Morelos cooked with frontera. Abraceros sun treated with thyme. Specially ground and dehydrated white scorn. Organic raw tile notch where mill fell on floor. Treated with bad news about someone detained at the border last night. With a dash of she's a good kid, an engineering student. Do you know any good lawyers? Thanks again to Victoria Molinar for showing me your beautiful city. You can see photos from this trip on the website. That's ToastedSisterPodcast.com. And while you're there, show a little support. There's a place where you can donate any amount. You can purchase a 2019 Native American food calendar or a Toasted Sister coffee cup. On the next episode, I talk with Chris Basney. He's the owner of Copper Crow Distillery in Wisconsin, and we talk about the 2018 law that lifts prohibition in Indian country. 
Toasted Sister is supported by the Kiwanik Broadcast Corporation. Music was created for Toasted Sister by CWION. Check them out on Bandcamp or visit CWION.com. That's C-W-A-Y-O-N.com. Or catch them on their upcoming tour, January 25th to February 3rd. Keep tabs on them on social media. Thanks for listening to the Toasted Sister podcast. I'm Andy Murphy.